Welcome back to yet another Behind the Lens. I can't believe it's February already. Um, January flew by. And now we're in February. Um, For those of you that don't know, our first-time listeners and our returning listeners, welcome, welcome. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with looking at television, film, books, on occasion stage, and talk to the artisans who make and create um, what you love seeing and hearing in entertainment today. I am thrilled, very excited with today's guests after seeing their films. Um, Jay Silverman, director Jay Silverman, is going to be joining us at the quarter hour mark to talk about his new film, Off the Menu. It is enchanting. And considering it involves food, all the foodies out there are going to love watching this film. But let me tell you, once you do see the film, you're going to be very hungry. So see it before you go to dinner for that Valentine's date next week. Um, It is just, it's enchanting. It's charming. It stars Santino Fontana, Daniel Ramirez, Maria Conchita Alonso, and Mackenzie Moss. And it is set in the beautiful American Southwest. And I'm excited to talk to Jay. It's going to be the first time that I'm having the chance to speak with a director to talk about shooting food. Uh, So I think that's going to it's going to be fun talking to him. And of course, at the half hour mark, we have first time feature writer, director Ethan Warren joining us to talk about his film West of Hers, Um, West of Her. The best way to describe West of Her is Malick-esque. It is, vi- it is very, very reminiscent with touchstones to the works of Terrence Malick. So I'm excited to talk to Ethan to find out his process for creating this particular film. There are no real words that can adequately describe what happens, the genesis, the journey, but to say it is beautiful to look at. There is some, as both of these films that we're going to talk about today with the with our respective directors have beautiful montages within them. Montages are always I find very, they can help or hinder, and it depends how well they are done, how thoughtfully they are done, where they are edited into the film, and the purpose therein. Um, both of these films have exceptional montages with uh, appropriate scoring underneath them. So we're going to talk about, hopefully we're going to get to talk about that with Jay and Ethan later in the show. But I want to start off the show with a film everybody's already talking about. It doesn't come out until February the 16th, Black Panther. Uh, I have seen it. Reviews are embargoed until tomorrow. Uh, my review will be out uh, online tomorrow. It won't be out in print until sometime next week at various outlets, but it will be online some point tomorrow. 
Uh, but I have to tell you, uh, it is mind-boggling. It is beautiful. Um, I can't wait to see these characters integrated into the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and particularly into Avengers Infinity War. Um, outstanding, outstanding film. It's exhilarating, action-packed, edge-of-your-seat excitement, and it's entertaining almost to a fault. But I have to, I have to say the technical, the production values, the artisans and craftsmen, your production designer, your costumer, uh, and of course, our Oscar-nominated cinematographer, Rachel Morrison, who makes the tentpole leap with this film, uh, are all exemplary. And I was fortunate enough, I spoke with uh, the production designer, Hannah Beachler, the other day. Uh, Hannah has done an amazing job. And like cinematographer Rachel Morrison, um, who unfortunately I wasn't able to speak to because she's battling the flu, but hopefully I'll be talking to her again in the coming week or so, uh, specifically about, about Black Panther. Um, Hannah has worked with Ryan Coogler, who directs and is one of the co-writers of Panther. Uh, she's worked with him on Creed, Fruitvale Station. She also did was production designer on last year's Best Picture winner, Moonlight. And Don Cheadle's incredible miles ahead. Each film as different as the next, but all have a commonality, a common thread of intimacy. Very personal, very intimate. So you might wonder, how does a production designer with that kind of background experience jump into a the Marvel Cinematic Universe with a film like Black Panther? I'll tell you how she does it, because she creates an intimacy with each of these glorious set pieces, and then they are woven together with a cohesiveness that fills you emotionally. Uh, she has done an amazing job. And I was so happy to get to talk to Hannah about her work on Black Panther. So, here you go, in its entirety. I've Mike. been an admirer of your work for a while and what you do with Ryan. Mm -hmm. But to see what you have done here, as I already emailed Disney and Meredith knows too, mm -hmm. um, I'm calling Oscar nomination for next year for you. <laughs> this is, oh, Hannah, this is amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You have such outstanding set pieces. The waterfall is amazing. Yeah. The cave is breathtaking. The Korean casino. One of my favorites. And then, and then you get, oh, this is just, I want to go there. I want to be in there. I want to gamble in there. I want them to take all my money. It's that beautiful. You really, you want to be in that room. Yeah. You want to be in, you don't have the cave here, but the cave. Yeah, that was one of my favorites. Yeah, what went, because this is a very eclectic palette, mm -hmm. yet it's also very cohesive. Yeah. How did you approach this? Because it's a lot different than doing South Philly in Creed. It sure is. And that was one of the really big things was trying to have it be eclectic, but have the movie be cohesive from beginning to end, even when we're in other countries. And Ryan and I really worked on that. And we came up with things, small things, that would kind of bring that cohesiveness together. Color was one of them. Um, and we were, you know, Ryan, actually this was Ryan, was very specific about this is this color, you know, Michael's colors are blue, 
you know, the river tribe was green, the royal color is purple and black. So we tried to really like work that in. And, you know, the other part of that is kind of really being delicate and thoughtful and meaningful about how we modernize certain uh, traditional African mm-hmm. cultures and tribes, mm-hmm. you know, and really trying to like not just take something that seems cool and then make it something modern, right? But take something and what it actually means and then use that in the same way, but modernize it. Mm-hmm. So we're not really like just appropriating it and putting it right. someplace. We're taking that specific thing for that specific reason. And saying, okay, this is this is something that we can modernize and turn into tech, or this is something that we want to do, like the rondavel tops on the and all the skyscrapers. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're coming into Gold City, I mean, even me, I was like, because <laughs> I hadn't seen any of it on a big screen yet. So. Oh, you saw it last night for the first time. Yeah, I did. So it was just like along with everybody else. But those were small things that we tried to do, and not call it out in a way that it's like, hey, look what we're, you know, Mm -hmm. doing with that. So, and then really the visit to South Africa for things like the waterfall Mm -hmm. was like, I don't know how many pictures of rocks that I took. (laughs) If somebody was to look through my photos, they'd be like, there's like a hundred pictures of different rocks. I don't understand. But it was really about like what in in the part of South Africa that we were, what's really the indigenous look of the rocks, Mm -hmm. the color. Um, And they were so... The thing that I noticed when I was in South Africa, everything was so contrasted mm-hmm. from size to color. You would look at these beautiful vistas and you'd see like the red, because of the red mud, you'd see the red rock. And then there'd just be like black through mm-hmm. it, you know, in this way that you've never seen it in nature before. So right. we really tried to bring that to. I think, and you also, you really embraced the contrast of the culture, of the, the herding, the shepherding. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, but then all of it, how, I'm curious how closely you worked with Rachel with the cinematography because the lighting is so specific. Yeah. And especially when you talk about the rocks and the shading and the texture, yeah. your production design comes across as being very tactile. Yes. It's a very tactile, you can feel, it's like you can touch it as you're watching this. Yeah. So I'm curious how you worked with Rachel and her lighting design to really bring these things forward because you could have designed the rocks flat. Right. And plus you're working with styrofoam to do, (laughs) and that takes on a whole different texture with paint and color. So I'm curious about that dynamic to make this look as beautiful as it did. We talked about it every single day from the time we took our uh, trip to Africa. Rachel joined and everybody joined the last week that I was, that we were there before we left. And we started the conversation right then, mm-hmm. you know, because you know, Ryan had always said, I want to get this African sunlight. You know, I want to get this because it's very specific, you know, it's yes. very different. And I want to get these African skies and I want to get these, you know, African night, you know, stars and things like that. And, and, and we kind of focused in the same way when we were in South Korea, but working with, so that's where it started with Rachel. Mm-hmm. And then once, you know, I started concepting and, and getting the illustrations, we'd sit down and look at things and be like, okay, well, you know, this is what's really important about this set. This is sort of my meaning that I'm bringing behind it. And then she would put her meaning on top of that. But Rachel, and, and I tell you what, because people ask me a lot, you know, how's the transition from small films to Panther? But this is where my small film experience comes in. And, and, and as well as with Rachel, because she uses a lot of natural light. 
you know, and and in indie movies, you are, you know, you make it a create, you make it creative, but it's not a choice sometimes mm-hmm. because of the budget. And here, the fantastic thing is, is that I think what we did and what Rachel did was that you can show that those things are purposeful. Those things can be purposeful on a grand level. You don't have to bring in every, you know, thing. It can be, and and that's what creates the intimacy Mm -hmm. because that's where we come from is these intimate sets and that's who Ryan is and that's the story that he's telling. And, you know, the the biggest challenge was going in, because I love Marvel films, and so I'm (laughs) all about it, you know, and for me, it's like there's always these big, grandiose spaces, and I knew that Ryan was going to tell this intimate story about father and son and family and country, and so it was always, how do I create these bigger spaces and feel intimate, and it's the lighting and the textures, and the way that Rachel used this natural lighting, and then, you know, you look in the sets, and there's always some kind of natural wood, clay, mm-hmm. stone, something. Um, and then it's carried through in the costuming and the jewelry exactly. as well. I mean, a perfect example are the waterfalls, because while it's grand in scope, the way you crafted it so it more or less curves yeah. and, mirrors the, and surrounds the pond. Very intimate setting. Exactly. The caves, you've got the low hanging. Exactly. With the ambient purple light from the vibranium coming up. Yeah, yeah. And then you counter it with with their golds behind it. Same thing in yeah. the casino. It's always very intimate, intimate corner. Yeah. There's very, like, Rachel only picked, like, one or two center shots. Yeah. Of the tables. Everything else are in small intimacies. Yeah. The throne room is intimate. The Oakland apartment. It's all small, but put it all together, and it's on such a grand it, it's scale. It's huge, and, that, and I'm glad that you noticed that because that was something that I really, like, that was so important to me. Um, you know, I talked to Marvel about it. Ryan and I talked about it. That exact thing was so important is to bring that intimacy to it. So I'm so happy that, you know, you recognize that because that's who I am as a designer. I think that that's my biggest Aesthetic, you know, I do have like the colors that I use all the time, and you know, people probably notice that. But I think what I do is I make it intimate. It's just really important to me because that's mm-hmm. the space for which you feel. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the space space for which we love to live and feel. So that's that's and that's who Ryan is. Yeah. You know, so that's and, and this is overall his story, his vision, and it's always you know I always tell Ryan and Mom like this is about you. You know. This is, <laughs> This is you. You are that man. You are having that struggle. So it's like knowing him and who and what he means mm-hmm. to me. I need to bring that, and I bring it with every one of the movies I work with him on because it's that important. You know, I'm curious because you mentioned color, and color is so important here. Yeah. And it's something, because of the grand scale of the story, this is where I, I was, like, so disappointed because we see the color of these specific tribes and yeah. the costume and their innate setting, but we don't get to learn about them. So it's like, okay, I want Black Panther 2, I want Black Panther 3, and I want to learn more about these tribes. Because yeah, there's Wakanda is, is it's vast, big. and it's big, and we really uh, did research and develop all of the tribes. So there's this wonderful stories behind, like, why the merchant tribe lives in the part of Wakanda that they live in, and the merchant tribe and the artisan tribe, and they lived in this Fine, tease me. Fine, <laughs> tease me. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's just... But the colors are so yeah. specific. I mean, we have the one tribe in the, you know, the Frank Gorshin, Batman, Riddler, Green 
outfits. And yeah, how, fabulous. How did you go about selecting color? Were you working, was Ryan involved? Was Kevin involved from Marvel? How did this color palette, because this really expands what we've seen from you yeah. in a color palette. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I tell you what, when I went to Africa, the, you know, and, and it's big, so we were driving a lot, and, and I'd be watching people all the time, and it, everyone's colorful. Like, the women were fabulous. They wore these skirts that come down past their knees, but they wore socks that come all the way up. And the socks were always, like, striped or pink or purple. And they were always these, like, you know, they'd have these scarves on that were these beautiful colors. And that was such an important part of the culture. It's such an important part, the textiles and all this color. And, you know, all the different architecture, the Grunzi architecture, the Dogon architecture, all of these different tribes, the Oma Valley tribes with mm -hmm. all the painted faces. And they find these things in nature and then they, you know, create these beautiful, like, flowers and all this. And so I knew, like, you know, Ryan and I was like, this is going to be colorful. <laughs> I think the most colorful thing you've done before this was miles ahead. It was. For Dawn, yeah. It was. Well, there was a very specific color story that went through miles ahead. Right. You know, and we tried to do that as well. And then Ryan's colors, though, you know, Michael's blue, and and um, which he is not really Ryan movie. And uh, if you look back. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, Royal is purple and black. So mm -hmm. we had those as our base. And then I really just wanted to people to feel this sense of joy through color. Mm -hmm. And that was Hannah Beachler, production designer for Black Panther in theaters Friday, February 16th. And you'll be reading and hearing more from me about Black Panther as the next couple weeks unfold. But in the meantime, let's get to a tasty little treat here as we welcome Jay Silverman. Are you there, Jay? Yes, I am. Welcome to How the, are you? I am fine. I am very excited to be talking to you. Um, of well, thank you. Of course, I'm not too happy your publicist didn't tell me eat before I watched the movie because when I was done watching it, I was starving. <laughs> this, this movie, it is one tasty treat on an emotional level. It is a sweet rom-com. It is visually stunning. You know, people just heard Hannah Beachler talking about uh, the use of color in the Black Panther. Well, you make equal, equally wonderful use of color in Off the Menu with the lensing of all of the foods that you have and the Mexican culture that you bring forth. A beautiful Thank little you. film. I mean, how, when, how did this script find its way to you? It's actually it's it's actually a sweet story because the the screenwriter uh, who had had not had done many scripts but had never had a film made actually uh, was at a a film um, I forget what you call it but one of those fests that they sell scripts to mm. directors and producers and production companies and we we got pitched. Um, the script and fell in love with it. It was one out of 150 we listened to, but it was the only <laughs> one that we thought was worthy. Well, and when you hear uh, when you hear the pitch for a, a script like Off the Menu, for you as a director, 
what starts happening? Do you start immediately envisioning how you can bring this to light visually, emotional tones and textures? What is the process for you when you pick up a script like off the menu? Well, Bethany Serona, who's one of my producers, was actually the one who found the script. And what typically manifests itself specifically for me, since I'm not only the director but the executive producer, mm-hmm. is it has to be something that's producible for an ind- independent movie. And right. that's a big question mark that you got to overcome <laughs> because you fall in love with something you can never afford to make isn't going to help anybody. Right. Yeah, so, so we we saw the story. We thought it was a great story with a significantly strong female lead that just happens to be uh, a minority, and I mean that just happens to be because I never set out to make a film about um, minorities. I set out to make a film about food, mm-hmm. and and I, and I thought it was pretty cool that it, it turns out that not only is Danya, the actress who plays uh, Javier in the movie, a strong character, which was written that way by Jen Goldman, but also, you know, a character that could carry a film, um, along with Santino Fontana, who was from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and he also was on Frozen. So these two characters and these two actors, you know, really helped uh, take the script to another level, and it was really great. Very fulfilling for me as a director because I can't, uh, I'm sure you feel the same way when you say a romantic comedy. They're far and few between these days. They really are. And what some people will now call a romantic comedy is anything but that. Uh, I find that so many of them are so far at a comedy end that the romance isn't there. And if it's there, it's very forced and it's not organic. And here, the romance unfolds very organically in this beautiful parallel with food. As we see food coming to life, dishes coming to life, we see the romance coming to life. And I think you executed that so exquisitely and with a very light hand. And I've got, I have to give kudos to your DP, Matt Edwards, um, for the lighting. Yeah, I, I have to... I have to say this. Num- number one, you can you can imagine just from the standpoint of a of a filmmaker that was a photographer for a better part of thirty five years. Um, I had to choose a DP that could take uh, the lead because mm-hmm. I wanted to focus on the performance, mm-hmm. and he, he understood right away from the get go that uh, the photography between what's depicted in the movie as being Irvine, California, and um, Mexico, New Mexico, there had to be an incredible amount of contrast. Mm-hmm. And I love golden themes, and this film really, really features what I would describe as, you know, some of the best parts of New Mexico. Oh, I mean, it's, it's exquisite. And the way you establish right away for the audience, we have the golden hues and the color and the streaming sunlight through windows in New Mexico, in Javiera's home with her, little, with her daughter, Sophia. And then you cut to Irvine with Santino's character of Joel in his condo, which is gray and stainless and has no life to it at all. So we get that great contrast immediately. You don't need exposition. We know immediately 
what the core is of each of these dynamics that we're going to be seeing. And then you slowly, as the two worlds merge through these two people, the, the frame widens out. The colors, you know, we see the character of Joel. Color starts embracing him. The lighting around him changes. It is a, it is as tasty visually as it is emotionally. Well, that makes me feel really great because that was our goal. <laughs> oh, well, you know, something that I'm very excited to ask you about, Jay. I've never gotten to talk to a director about food styling, food styling and lensing food, because every plate of food here is absolutely magnificent and mouthwatering. How do you approach well, that? <laughs> I'll tell you something interesting, and I say this to you with... Uh, an inordinate amount of pride. Number one, you know, this is my third movie, so for me, it was not a big deal to um, contemplate using my newly crowned daughter, uh, who just graduated from Johnson Wales Culinary School, to to do the food. I had enough experience in the last 35 years to know if she's going to be able to cut the the menu. Um, you know, if she doesn't perform, we say thanks anyways. But she, my daughter, Clara Silverman, did all the food in the movie. And, you know, it was a very, very fragile deal because as her father, the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, make it appear that I was doing my daughter a big favor. I really knew she could cut it, and she did a magnificent job. And, of course, she's getting as good a reviews as... Uh, as, as I am, so who could complain? I, I mean, the plating of the foods, just the way, the, the use of color with the peppers. With, I was telling my sound engineer, Pam, before the show today, I said, I'm looking at this, and you've got the vibrant green of the habanero peppers, and you've got the perfect little round slices of jalapeno sitting atop this bright, yellow, beautiful fried egg. And everything looks almost too pretty to eat but it makes you damn hungry i mean it's yeah yeah. who got to eat all the food well you know (laughs) i know that your your listeners or your your um the people that follow your show are gonna laugh but i'm allergic to to green peppers (laughs) 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 and and i never sampled one thing but everybody else loved it and you could just imagine from my standpoint, because it's funny because the screenwriter wrote um, the the dish in a hypothetical form and my daughter had to implement it. And she said, there's no yellow garnish that we can do here and excluding corn. So I said, well, use corn, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it actually came up pretty special. I mean, you know, each dish and the fact that they're all edible. Oh, yeah. This isn't, these aren't just fake things thrown together. People are actually eating this food on screen. Yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. Uh, I'll share with you one thing. We all know the movie Field of Dreams with Kevin Cosner. So I landed in uh, Taos, New Mexico to scout locations. And in my quest, you know, the, the one that left me sleepless at night was trying to find the chili field, which you've now seen the movie, so you know how special the chili field is. It's beautiful. And it turns out, 
and and I'm I'm reiterating the fact that this is an independent movie, so we don't have a budget like Kevin Cosner did. But we were lucky enough to have a coordination meeting at this uh, um, farm-to-table restaurant in Taos, and coincidentally, the owner of the restaurant introduced herself, and she says, "Come take a walk with me. Maybe you'll you'll like my." organic garden and it turns out that she ended up plowing another acre for us connected to her organic garden and then we ended up growing our own chilies oh my gosh it wasn't until the film was over that she told me you know just for the record no one grows chilies in taos because it's too cold She goes, we just lucked out on unseasonally dry and warm weather. Well, <laughs> thought, look. well thanks for telling me that now. You hey, know? well, you know, obviously it was meant to be. But, you know, I so, guess so. You have a, a wonderful and incredible element. You have two special incredible elements in this film. In addition to Santino and Danya and, and your daughter's wonderful work, you've got Maria Conchito Alonso, who is always great to see. And, of course... Mackenzie Moss. Oh, my God. Where did you find Mackenzie? This is a great question because, I mean, I can tell you, and I'm not boasting. I'm just referencing the fact that I've been in the business for 35 years doing commercials as a director. Mm -hmm. And the last thing a director has is the power to pick a young actress because typically the ad agencies choose the perfect visual person and the directors get stuck with trying to get a performance out of these people. And Mackenzie was one of the few characters in the entire movie that could have destroyed the whole movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And what made her so magnificent is, um, you know, we saw her work. She played Steve Jobs' daughter in the movie Jobs. Mm -hmm. And she was so magnificent, and you can just imagine what they put her through to cast her in that movie. Um, and when we ended up, you know, working, I, I only think I had one scene in the entire movie that we had a challenge with, and it really had nothing to do with her. So we were very lucky. And you really put Mackenzie through her paces because you got her in a truck, kind of sort of driving. You've got her in water, you know, she, and then she goes toe to toe with perfect comedic timing against Santino in his character of Joel. Their repartee together is fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, you know what? It's, it's one thing to tell an actor the tone of what you want to have. It's another thing to, I mean, I could sit here and, and, uh, and reflect, and I can say to you, there was never once where I had to have her run the lines again because they weren't projecting the way that I wanted it done. Mm-hmm. So you can just imagine how talented she is because when you're making an independent movie, by the way, this movie was made in 20 days. Wow. And, um, you know, it's just super critical despite the challenge of casting a young girl to play in this movie. But, you know, she literally could have destroyed the whole movie mm-hmm. with uh, delays, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. And she she stepped up to the plate and blew everybody away. Well, you know, you have this incredible montage within the film that I am just in love with as as we see Joel and Javiera, you know, falling in love while cooking. The camera work is beautiful, but I know when putting montages together, very challenging. 
very challenging yeah. on your holds, on what angles, what you're emotionally trying to convey, finding that right point, and then putting the music behind it. And I have to say, I am beyond impressed with what your editor, Lauren Connolly, did in putting well, that yeah. sequence, to, bringing it to life. I'll tell you something. Number one, I was anxious to work with Lauren again because she did my earlier movie and won a number of awards. And now um, uh, she just totally knocked it out of the park. And when you have a strong female character, and and you know what it's like in the editing bay, she she could polish it up and make her even stronger. Mm-hmm. Specifically in that scene at the end where she confronts uh, Joel's sister. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of power in that performance, but with the way the editor cut that was just so fulfilling for me as a filmmaker. Uh, additionally, when you're working with a movie that's, again, I mentioned this, an independent movie, yeah. and have a composer by the name of Dave Holden who just knocked it out of the park with basically 90% of the movie's original um, compositions mm-hmm. with a live orchestra. I, so it's, that that was really off the record, you know, something that I could have never never gotten without somebody that was willing to pull out all the stops. And I have to say, the score, like you know, like Matt's visuals, it's light. You keep this film light, very enjoyable. We don't get bogged down, even in some intense emotional moments. There's still a lightness here that you don't want to turn away. You don't want to walk away. You don't want to, you know, turn off the film. You just want, you want to see where this keeps going. And you just get so drawn by the visuals. Your visuals are really what are attracting everybody. And then you just fall in love with these characters. Uh, It's a wonderful marriage. Well, that makes me feel really great. I mean, my goal, uh, specifically during these difficult times, whether it be in America or in the world with division, it was to do something that was um, fulfilling and kind of gave you a little bit of escapism and and strength. That that was just the whole reason I always loved to go to movies was to escape. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Well, and of course, how was the world premiere at Santa Barbara the other day? I have to ask. It was unbelievable. <laughs> did did everybody get No, I mean it was tr- it was truly unbelievable for me because I went to a film school called Brooks Institute in Santa Barbara. Aww. So to to have a world premiere of my movie at the Santa Barbara Film Festival, which is a pretty prestigious film festival, was a big deal for us. Well, it is indeed. And and yeah. of course, it's kind of funny. I have to share this with you. We playing at the Granada Theater, which is a kind of a legit theater. There is Loggins and Messina, and uh, the 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 rock group Loggins and Messina, mm-hmm. and they were playing there the day that I started school forty years ago. So, oh my! <laughs> they're having they were having a reunion. I thought that was pretty funny. Oh my! It's it's destined, Jay. It's destined. But something else is destined is come tomorrow, everybody can see off the menu when it's available on DVD and VOD. That's correct. Yeah. Do you know which VOD That's very platforms? exciting for us. Oh, it has to be. It has to be. Do you know what VOD platforms 
Is it all of them or just a few select? No, it's all of them. I mean, it, the the ones that, uh, the, what, from what I'm what I'm told, it's on. It's going to be on Amazon. It's going to be on iTunes. Most cable operators will mm-hmm. uh, have it on demand, and you can buy it on Amazon uh, as a DVD as well. Well, I know I have to buy it because I have to have it, just because I have to have it. Uh, <laughs> how sweet! <laughs> and and I just want to. You're, you're good at your job. You know how to make you know how to make us filmmakers feel like a part of this community, huh? <laughs> well, I hate to tell you this, but I've been doing this for thirty years. I did production. I still do production now and then. But your publicist will tell you if I thought your film stunk, I would tell you. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I make no, I'm lucky. <laughs> I make no bones about it. <laughs> but everybody can learn more about Off the Menu from the website of offthemenuthemovie.com. And then you're on all the social media platforms so they can they can follow with the release. You you've got a uh, showing next week in Santa Fe as well. No, this week. This week, the 8th. Yeah. Yeah, Wednesday night we're we're opening in the Santa Fe, uh, which is a big deal for me because the movie was shot in New Mexico. Yeah. Oh god. Well, Jay, unfortunately, we're out of time because I have to speak to another first a first time indie filmmaker. Um Okay. But <laughs> I can this has been a real joy. I hope you'll come back on the show again. I would I would be um, honored, and I thank you so much for your enthusiasm towards our movie. And and it's you know in the independent film field, as I'm sure you know more than anybody, requires these types of things to get people to watch. Otherwise, their films never get noticed. That's just it. And this is one that when when you're looking at the movie menu, people off the menu is the one that you want to pick. So. You're the best. (laughs) Jay, thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. You're very welcome. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Jay Silverman, director of Off the Menu. And now we have have the very wonderful, the very wonderful Ethan Warren joining us. Hello, Ethan. Hello. That's... Quite a compliment. I'm not sure I should uh, accept that so easily. Okay. Uh, well, thank you it's, so much for, for it, having me on. It's the very terrible Ethan Warren. You know what? What can I say? Does that make that, you feel better? Yeah. Well, I can only go up from there. You yeah. can. Okay. Well, we'll start with that then. The the very terrible or somewhat terrible Ethan Warren is joining us. It's already getting better. <laughs> First time feature film writer director west of her. Wow. Where this I I watched this and it was the first thing I'm thinking is this is so Terrence Malick. It's this ethereal mysterious quality to it with a beauty that is just you know once again I'm sitting here talking to a director with a cinema who has a cinematographer yours Cameron Bryson beautiful beautiful visuals. And you take us on a visual tour of the United States, essentially. That's right, yeah. And, and um, I, I think uh, the, the Terrence Malick thing is, is really apt. Um, and that's definitely something that we had in mind as we were shooting. Uh, right before we started pre-production, I read a piece about him that, that mentioned uh, 
he always looks for unrepeatable moments mm-hmm. above everything else when he's when he's filming and uh, you know he'll he'll want to catch a butterfly landing on a, a flower or something this, this thing that is only ever going to happen once and that was something that was, was really a guidepost for us particularly as we started doing more sort of improvisation there's a lot of scenes in the movie where the actors were uh, essentially writing their own dialogue as, as we ended up in these amazing locations that we didn't always have uh, something planned to shoot in. And once again, yeah, like my, my uh, director of photography and my friend, uh, Cameron, Cameron Bryson, um, just has this amazing intuitive ability to uh, just follow these actors around as we're in, say, Monument Valley or the Grand Canyon and use his camera in a way that is, is both highlighting the space but also never using the beauty to sort of draw attention away from the story and from the actors. And uh, I think I, I saw him recently describe it as, uh, as sort of a, a dance between the mm-hmm. actors and him and, and this very sort of, as I say, intuitive uh, movement that, that they were playing off of each other with. Mm-hmm. Where did the idea for West of Her come from? And give the listeners a little... Give them a little bit uh, of what the synopsis of what this film is about from your perspective. Sure. Uh, so there's sort of a few different elements to it that all, all kind of blend together because um, the way I describe it is, is it's a romance with a twist of mystery. So it, it's about these two uh, young people who are strangers at the beginning of the film uh, who are traveling across the country participating in something that, that may be sort of a mysterious street art project or may, in fact, be something more significant. And uh, that aspect was inspired very much by the Toynbee tiles, which is uh, a real-life phenomenon that has been happening uh, all over North and South America and, and maybe has even spread farther than that over the past few decades, uh, where all over the streets uh, of cities across, you know, this huge swath of, of land, uh, these small linoleum tiles will pop up seemingly overnight, uh, bearing this, this strange and cryptic message. And that really grabbed me and that, that really haunted me when I first read about it uh, close to 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And the thing that really grabbed me was the idea that uh, given the sort of... Uh, widespread, widespread rather, of uh, locations that, that there's no way that this could be the work of just one person. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started to sort of spin off thinking about what would lead you to want to participate in something like this. Where would you have to be at in your life to say, you know what, I'm going to go off and drive across the country doing this massive, secretive, conspiracy sort of project. Mm-hmm. And that dovetailed in with some of the, the experiences that I was having and feeling at that time in my life, this, this feeling in my mid-20s of sort of uh, being disconnected from the world, um, feeling that I didn't really fit in anywhere or have anything to, to sort of connect with and, and give my life uh, shape and meaning. Mm-hmm. And through that, I created this protagonist named Dan, and then the... the uh, opposite protagonist, uh, Jane, who was very much conceived as, as a um, opposing force to him so that they would push against each other and uh, challenge each other and, and ultimately, hopefully, 
bring out the best in each other and, and cause positive change in, in both of them. Mm-hmm. And it, it does become a romance, but uh, not probably sort of your typical one. Uh, and, and that was something I was, I was really pushing for, was, was to keep their relationship sort of prickly and difficult, and, and that while there are moments of sort of romance and beauty to their relationship, that it also, I think, acknowledges some of the, the difficulties we can have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, connecting with each other and, and forming that, that kind of relationship. Well, I'm, I'm curious, Ethan, because of the fact this is the film is about two strangers that meet, in order to keep that concept and to more or less have your actors, Ryan and Kelsey, becoming friends as you're going on this journey so it can convey through in their performances, did you have any rehearsal time? How fluid was the, the script structure? Did you let them, you know, hang out beforehand? Or did you try and let it be truly strangers meeting and going on this journey? Well, we had virtually no rehearsal. Uh, so Kelsey was based in L.A. at the time of casting, and Ryan was based in New York. And so we uh, all met in Chicago on, on the first day of filming, and we did one read-through, the mm-hmm. three of us, uh, the day before we started. And then after that, you know, the film is virtually shot in uh, in sequence and in real time mm-hmm. uh, because you know, the, the shape of their road trip is the same as, as the shape of filming it. And so the script initially I, I felt was uh, something I really wanted to stick very close to. Um, but then as we started working together, I started to sort of loosen that up a little bit and I, I realized that those were the moments where the story was really coming alive, was the moments where, without sort of violating the structure of the story, they would riff a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, not, not only are there some long improvised sequences that I think are pretty clearly improvised, there are just little riffs that they'll go on in the middle of a scene uh, that, that are really delightful and, and make the movie more three-dimensional and lively than it would have been if we had stuck very much to this uh, you know, word for word precision to my script. Um, and as, as for their uh, sort of relationship, as we were driving, uh, we had three vehicles. We had an RV, uh, my car, and then a rental car, which uh, was our picture car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ryan and Kelsey would drive the picture car every day. Uh, and so when we're driving six or seven hours across the Great Plains, uh, it would just be the two of them in the car and and building their characters. And, you know, I don't know what they were talking about in there, but I think it really shows, particularly in those improvised sequences where I was often saying, just be yourselves, especially mm-hmm. towards the beginning, and get to know each other. You're seeing this, this real friendship uh, develop on screen in, in a very natural way, and then eventually you're seeing the uh, actors really influence who the characters are are mm-hmm. uh, and and bringing this dimensionality to them that I think you can't fully achieve uh, with with just one person's imagination. So that is is really one of the elements that I am proudest of and, and think is most exciting. Well, something else is exciting are all of the locations, the beauty of the United States that you show us. You take us, you know, from the Midwest Plains. We're in the Rockies. We're in the desert. You're all over. How did you go about mapping out? this trip and deciding the locations that you would use to shoot? Because you have some truly 
you know, money shots in this film, uh, some sunset shots that are just the one next to the church is with the purple and, and blue sky and pink sky is just exquisite. I just so many beauteous images of this of the landscape that is America. So I'm curious how you picked your locations and how you did how you went about routing this journey. Well, the the uh, journey is uh, based very specifically on a real trip that my wife and I uh, had taken back when she was my girlfriend uh, in 2010. And so then when I was conceiving this story, it, it just seemed easiest to uh, stick to the real locations that I had visited because you can envision it in your uh, mind's eye and you know the distance between things. And if you leave this place in the morning, you're going to be this place at sunset. And I, I think really the, the sense of um, personality to the location ended up influencing the story. So when I realized that three quarters of the way through, they were going to be in the desert for a week, that sort of starts to influence the emotional temperature of the story. And, and, you know, when you're hot and sweaty out in the desert, you're feeling in a very different emotional headspace than when you're in these, you know, lush, cool, uh, rocky mountains. And so it was a real sort of uh, push and pull between the story and the actual route uh, in a way that I'm, I'm realizing more and more, um, you know, the, the locations serve almost as, as a secondary plot generator mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And there are some moments that were just happy accidents. Um, like my wife and I did not visit uh, the recreation Civil War era village that we shot. The sequence that you mentioned, uh, there's, there's that shot next to the church that became our poster. Um, that was That's just a location in uh, South Dakota called 1880 Town, uh, where they also filmed portions of Dances with Wolves, mm-hmm. that we stumbled upon uh, as we were driving one evening and we, we stopped for a bathroom break, which you got to do a lot when you're hauling <laughs> a group of people across six hours of, of driving every day. And we stopped in at this uh, rest area and out back there was this tourist attraction that was closing for the night. And we said, would you stay open for another hour so we could just play around in there? And they said, absolutely. And, and those were those happy accidents that I think a travelogue really allows for that uh, a lot of other indies don't have the opportunity to find uh, and, and I think really make the whole thing pretty exciting. Well, you know, because this is an indie and the very nature of this being a road trip, you know, how do you get financing for a film like this? This is not a quote-unquote more traditional film where you can go and show people and say, okay, this is what we've got, this is what we're going to do. This is this is exactly where we're going to shoot. You know, how do you get financing for a film like this? Well, it's funny actually. We we did have to have things very very uh, regimented. We when you're going out and and pitching this thing, we had to very specifically say this is where we're going to shoot because months ahead we were uh, planning our schedule and, and making uh, hotel reservations and and finding permits. So. Uh, it, it is a non-traditional uh, story, but, but <laughs> by no means was this, this loosey-goosey. Um, so we, we did crowdfund. We used Indiegogo, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we put together this nice little video with all of the different cast and crew recording little testimonials from everywhere that they were located at the beginning to sort of demonstrate that 
this was this far-flung group of people. Uh, our, our makeup and costume artist, Hillary uh, Fenton, ended up describing us as, as the North American misfits, and I oh. always kind of liked that. Um, so a large portion of it did come from crowdfunding, and then just cobbling it together uh, through smaller uh, personal investments uh, from people, because we, we shot this really on about the smallest uh, budget you can you can get away with shooting something and have it look as beautiful as it does because the uh, cast and crew were, were very <laughs> uh, willing and accommodating to uh, rough it a little bit. Um, you know, we were, we were sleeping in the RV sometimes. People were uh, bunking together in, in little crappy motels and, and uh, eating sandwiches on the side of the road so that really our, our entire very slim budget was, was being put up on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and part of, that, part of that very slim budget that you have uh, a lot of credit also goes to your editor, Mark Sira. Uh, what led you to Mark, yes, and what kind of discussions did the two of you have in editing? Because here you have some beautiful, beautiful montages, which, as I was saying to our earlier director, Jay Silverman, you know, it's very difficult to find the right emotional tone and balance with montages. And then to find and have the music put behind them. And I have to say, your composer, Ariel, Ariel Marks, beautiful, beautiful scoring on, on this. Yeah, that, that's so true on both counts. And I, I love that you, uh, you name-check those people because uh, I, I, really, I really love to highlight the work of my collaborators here because they just raised the game of this movie in such really direct, specific ways. So I love <laughs> to hear them get a shout-out. Uh, with Mark, um, we uh, had had sort of struggled through a few different versions of this before we came to him. We had worked on editing it for six months, if not closer to a year, and, and had just not managed to find the voice, particularly in those montages. You know, there's so much beauty and, and so many wonderful moments, but each of those montages we had two, three hours worth of footage, and a lot of it's pretty mundane. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what Mark brought to the piece was, I think, a real sense of poetry. Uh, I think he has this really great eye and ear for what will happen when you take two moments that might not seem connected and might not even seem significant, but you put them together. And there's this the sequence in Monument Valley, uh, you know, the location where they shot all the classic westerns, mm-hmm. searchers, etc. Uh, and it's a lot of just small moments between them, like they're looking at a plant, or uh, Kelsey is, is doing this little, um, making a wire sculpture of uh, of Ryan's face. Mm-hmm. And Kelsey worked on that little sculpture for a good uh, five or ten minutes. And in the moment, I was thinking, like, well, this is this is just dead air. We're never using this. But then Mark took it and, and found this significance in that moment mm-hmm. that ended up in the, the final cut, uh, the, the idea that in his mind she was uh, creating a vision of him. And, and you know, he, <laughs> for that whole sequence, I have somewhere a document where he really maps out, like, this is why each of these moments is significant and builds to something. And I never, I never would have found that on my own. He's, he's got a gift. And then particularly the way he helped us put together... Uh, one sequence that I won't spoil because it's it's really the big emotional crux. Mm-hmm. But the four corners sequence where they have that uh, very intense emotional conversation uh, 
over the course of, of a long, long conversation at Mark's apartment between me and Cameron, uh, the DP producer, and, uh, and Mark, we came up with this idea of, of what if we kind of fragment the story here and, and what if we get into some pretty weird, heady ideas of trying to use the editing to suggest that we are actually entering Dan's memory. Uh, and, and he just pulled that off in such an extraordinary way that that still really blows me away every time we see it. You know, there's a great and lyricism. Then, lyricism is the word for Mark's editing here. There, absolutely. There's and, a poetic and I lyricism. Sure I'll pass that along if he doesn't hear this. Yeah, but and what about what about Ariel's score? I mean, just it really is beautiful and really meshes the marriage between the score and the, the editing that Mark has put together. It they go hand in hand. The ebb and flow of the two in tandem is beautiful. I completely agree. And uh, Ariel uh, had been working on some sketches for us before the final edit and then, then did her final compositions to the, the actual final cut. Um, yeah, Ariel I found when she was still a uh, grad student and um, she was really, really eager to, to talk about particularly some of the influences that I was citing. Uh, we mm-hmm. talked a lot about the Beasts of the Southern Wild soundtrack. That was uh. <laughs> when I put out uh, uh, feelers for our composers. That was what I said. I'm looking for something along those lines because that's a very melodic score mm-hmm. uh, and often a sort of very big and emotional and soaring score, but the kind that you can also get stuck in your head and hum. And that was what I was looking for. Uh, I was also looking for um, very strong Americana instrumentation, uh, you know, strings and uh, fiddles and, and piano. And, and I really wanted uh, all live uh, musicians, not, not synthesizers. And that was something that she was really excited to put together with her community of artists. Uh, she also came to me with the idea of writing an original end credit song, which I hadn't even thought to do, and she just hit out of the park. Our, our premier film festival, uh, the Scruffy City Film and Music Festival, created a Best Original Song Award to give it to Ariel. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and, yeah, and, and, I mean, you know, that that's just... We had a lot of really talented people uh, submit samples to to be composer and we could have put it together in a lot of nice ways but ariel just went above and beyond and and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the movie it it is without her uh and i should say that soundtrack uh will be available tomorrow along with the movie you can uh check that out on itunes and and i believe spotify and all your other favorite uh streaming services and but of course everybody can find west of her starting tomorrow uh on the digital platforms that is right. Yeah, so we are uh, still up for pre-order on iTunes uh, until tomorrow, and then it goes live on uh, pretty much whatever um, streaming service you prefer. There, it, it's going to be on some services I had actually never even heard of, but uh, our distributor Gravitas Ventures. Yeah, but isn't uh, that fun? With, and and <laughs> it's it's really fun. <laughs> it's a new. And then uh, it's uh, yeah, cable on demand, and. Uh, I believe it'll be uh, actually an international release, too, although I haven't checked on that recently, but, but that is my understanding, is you'll be able to see this uh, all over the world. Well, now, quick, before, because we're almost out of time for the day, for the show, I've got to ask you, Ethan, first feature film, writing, directing, road picture to boot, what did you learn about yourself in the process of making West of Her? 
that you can now take forward into your future projects that will aid you and help you with where you go in the future? Uh, I, the answer is, is collaboration, plain and simple. Uh, I was focusing more on writing before I jumped into directing this, and I realized that so much of the sort of disconnect I was feeling from the world came from, from loneliness and, and from wanting to collaborate with other people. And making this movie brought me out of myself. It got me out of my apartment in a pretty dramatic way. And I formed relationships that, that have continued on for, for years, even as the movie is, has uh, stopped being in production. And I've realized that that's, that's what brings me joy, is coming together with other artists. And I've, I've started doing more uh, theater work since then. And it's, it's really been... That, that's what I've learned is, is that I derive my joy and my uh, fulfillment from, from putting my head together with other people and, and that sort of let's put on a show feel that you just can't get by yourself. So that's, that's been pretty wonderful. Well, Ethan, thank you so much for joining me on Behind the Lens today. This has been a real treat. I hope you will come back on, on the show again. Anytime. This was, this was a lot of fun. Ah, uh, well, and... It's a lot. It's going to be a lot of fun for people starting tomorrow when they can actually stream west of her and get the soundtrack. I'm so thrilled the soundtrack is going to be available because the scoring is absolutely beautiful on this one. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you can't see the movie and not want to hear some of those songs again. That's so. that's just it, Ethan. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'll talk to you again soon. I hope. I hope so, too. Have a good day. Bye-bye, Ethan. And that was Ethan Warren, writer-director of West of Her, available tomorrow. So, great directors today. Some wonderful films, both available. Next week, Kevin Good in studio. Jenna St. John in studio. And we will have directors Derek Greer and Ron King talking about an incredible documentary, The Millionaire's Unit. So, until next week... I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.